Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. I'm the Dean of Students and Head of Debate for Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. And tonight, I'll be your host on this episode of What's the Res? We here at What's the Res are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Tonight, uh, we'll be discussing the March 2020 Public Forum Resolution, which reads, Resolved, the United States should increase its use of nuclear energy for commercial energy production. And I am so pleased to be joined by a, 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 an expert in commercial nuclear power. Uh, Dr. Andrew Spence Spencer is a supervisor operator who oversees requalification training at a commercial nuclear power plant. Uh, he is also a senior research fellow for the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, an adjunct professor for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a PhD in Christian Ethics from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Spence, welcome to What's the Res? Right, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be on. I'm so glad you're willing to do this. I, I know it's, uh, I, I don't think we've ever actually met in person, if I remember correctly. No, no, we have not yet. No, uh, you were so gracious a few years back. I remember I was trying to figure out how on earth to make a little bit of extra cash to meet an unexpected tax bill, and you were well ahead of me in the uh, writing for the internet game. And a mutual friend connected us, and you helped me find a, a writing contest. So, uh, but uh, I, I've enjoyed following your work over the years. Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of where you've gone from seminary and what you're doing now. How? How? What? What? What's your story? Okay, so, um, well, I mean, I guess I'll start a little farther back, right? Because it, it's pertinent to the question. Sure. So uh, I went to the Naval Academy uh, and graduated with a Bachelor of Science in English, uh, which exists. Uh, and then so I went from there uh, into the submarine force. So got into Navy nuclear power, spent six and a half years there, learned, uh, qualified on three different uh, reactors. And then when I got out, I intended to go to seminary. And then I moved up to Wake Forest, uh, needed a job, uh, and uh, saw a posting for a job down at the uh, Sharon Harris Nuclear Power Plant down there in New Hill, North Carolina. And so I worked there for five years as an instructor while I finished up an MDiv and started a PhD. I was able to work at seminary for a couple of years on staff, and that was a really enjoyable time. And then I got recruited to go out to Oklahoma Baptist University, where I served as the uh, uh, director for, uh, or well, actually associate vice president for institutional effectiveness was my final title, uh, where I did accreditation stuff and, uh, and worked through that, where I finished my PhD in Christian ethics. Um, and then after a couple of years, uh, was looking for something different. And then came back to commercial nuclear power, and now I uh, I live in Michigan, and I I'm a, uh, a I supervise operations requalification programs. So. Yeah, that's amazing. Those, those seem like two separate worlds. Do they? Do you find that? Uh, do, do your studies in Christian ethics overlap with your work in in nuclear in the nuclear power field, or are those separate? Are those separate parts of life? Well, I mean, at some level, uh, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. Um, so, you know, we'll see, uh, there, my wife and I have a running joke about the number of job changes I've had, uh, which I'd, I'd like to minimize in the future, but we'll see. Uh, but no, there's a lot of overlap. So, uh, for, for example, I brought a lot of the thinking and the learning that I did as a, a Christian ethicist in the PhD program, uh, to my current job. I've helped to develop a, a, a leadership program based on character and getting people to think even in a secular environment about, uh, how, who we are matters to what we do and how successful we are in, in, in uh, being, you know, good stewards of our, our roles. So there's a lot of overlap. Uh, you know, I also have opportunities to, to, uh, to discuss uh, my faith and with people that have deep questions that I'm able to answer because of the education. And so, you know, it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's wonderful. I know. We have. Uh, so I'm. A, I'm also a high school teacher by day and a PhD student by night. And last year we had 
our uh, first uh, year, we had a student who was aiming for the Naval Academy. Uh, he ended up going to Georgia Tech, and he was deferred the Naval Academy, but they accepted his application. He's currently trying to decide whether he should, in fact, go to the Naval Academy and kind of restart after the, he's already finished. He's in the middle of uh, finishing up freshman year at, at Georgia. Uh, and would would you recommend going to the Naval Academy if if people have the opportunity to do so? Yeah, I mean the first year's rough uh, for everyone, and then after that, I had a really good time. Uh, so I have friends there that uh, I've met that uh, you know I still keep in touch with. So it, it was a good experience. I'd do it again, um, even knowing what I know now. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I, I do love how your story really illustrates the, a lot of the value in a, in a solid liberal arts foundation. If, uh, if you were an English major at a, uh, at, at the Naval Academy, uh, cause I, I, my students so frequently have a precise career path in mind from even the beginning days of high school. And I, I never tire of reminding them that they cannot predict the future and they do not know what direction life's going to take them. So they are re- very well served with a broad foundation. Well, let's get into our topic matter for tonight. Uh, Spence, I, I, I'll confess that I'm one of the, the, the many people who appreciate what you do and other nuclear power professionals do, though I don't really understand it. And I think that kind of understanding is going to be really important for getting into this resolution. So in a few minutes, could you just uh, help us know a little bit more about how exactly nuclear power works? How, how do we get electricity from rocks that don't burn? Okay, so the fundamentals of nuclear power, the way that the commercial power industry works, uh, we mine ore, well, we, some company out there mines ore, and uranium is a naturally occurring element out there. Uh, it uh, Heavier elements tend to be less stable, and so uh, there's a certain number of elements that uh, you actually, if you can split their, their nucleus, you get more energy out than it took to actually make it split. Uranium is one of those. So most of the uranium out there is uranium-238, uh, which is not very fissile. It doesn't, it doesn't split very easily. Uh, and, uh, but we look for the uranium-235. And, and actually what, what, the, um, what they do is they use a centrifuge to separate out uranium-235 and what they call enrich it. And so we load in commercial nuclear power our fuel with little pellets of uh, what is about somewhere between 3 and 5% uh, uranium-235. And those little pellets that get stacked into rods that then get put into fuel bundles, and we put about 185 of them in a boiling water reactor and, and about 52 of them, and it, it depends on the size, but uh, in a, uh, uh, a PW or a pressurized water reactor, uh, they will take those, and uh, that, that's what we shoot a neutron at. So uh, we shoot the neutron at the uranium. Uh, when the neutron hits the uranium nucleus, it gets excited. It, it has a lot of extra energy that gets put into it, as long as the neutron is the right energy level. And when it gets uh, just so, there's a probability that you're going to get it to split. Now, about every uh, every neutron that hits a uranium-235 gives you about 2.4 uh, more neutrons out and a bunch of heat that happens. And that's that 2.4 is what allows you then to... Um, to make more fissions that happen uh, because we lose some along the way because they just don't hit the right target and that sort of thing. And then the heat is actually what then makes the water hot. And the water, then we boil the water, and then the water then turns the turbine, and then the turbine then uh, goes around and there's magnets involved, electromagnetics, uh, and that in the end is what produces your electricity. So this really is a matter of producing the energy to turn the turbines, which is where that, that turning of the turbines is what's producing the electricity. Yeah. The only difference between a coal power plant and a nuclear power plant is what's making the water hot. Oh, okay. How, is, is, that the, is that a similar process to military uses of nuclear power, or are these completely separate things? Well, so uh, the fundamentals are the same. Uh, in, in military nuclear power, it's a higher concentration because, uh, and there's some other differences in terms of um, reliability uh, because uh, there's not much danger of a torpedo coming to hit my commercial nuclear power plant. Uh, and so, and I don't have multiple people, their lives dependent on being several hundred feet below the water 
uh, with, uh, with a need to have propulsion that keeps us safe. And so there's differences in design philosophy and, and reliability, but the biggest difference is really just how, how enriched the fuel is. The general principles are all the same. That's fascinating. So has this, is this a, is this method of developing or of, of producing electricity? How, how long has this been a, a part of the United States electrical grid? Um, so I can't think off the top of my head when the first, it was either the late fifties or the early sixties when the first plants went commercial, um, being commercial. So, uh, it is when we shut the breaker and actually start running the meter, uh, to charge people. There's a period before that where you actually generate power and you're testing and that sort of thing. Sure. It usually takes three to four years. Um, but so it's been about 50 uh, to 60 years that there's been commercial nuclear power. And, uh, you know, some of those plants are still operating safely after all those years. Wow. Okay. And how, how widespread is this, both within the United States and then also are there lots of other countries that use this method for producing commercial electricity? Well, there's about a hundred, a little over 120 nuclear facilities, like commercial power facilities in the United States, um, with more reactors because some of them have, uh, some have one, some have two, some have three, a few have four uh, units on them as well. And uh, so there's a bunch of reactors. We make about uh, 20 to 25 percent of the power that 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 people in the United States use. Um, there, uh, Germany is shutting theirs down after uh, concerns uh, with Fukushima. Uh, France is the really the highest percentage. We, we have the, the largest uh, total megawatts we produce uh, through, um, through, through nuclear power, but France is a higher percentage. Uh, South Africa has got a power plant. Um, China has several. Japan still has some. Uh, India has some, so it's, it's pretty well uh, widespread throughout the and, and UK, uh, Scandinavia and countries. Some of the, uh, there's some up there, so it's pretty widespread. Well, that's really interesting. Cause I, I mean, I think my, my mental picture of a nuclear power plant is probably more shaped by the Simpsons and, and, and Homer at like asleep with a big button and it's about to all go kaboom than it is anything else. I don't think I realized just how widespread this network of nuclear power plants was. Yep. And, uh, yeah, Homer's not very accurate. Uh, that's good and, to know. Uh, that, that is good to know. Um, and, and the interesting thing about the, the commercial nuclear power industry is we are very interconnected. So there's a world association of nuclear operators, uh, in that, that is, uh, all these plants and, and we'll send people over to do inspections at other plants and air notes. Uh, when somebody else learns something about a process, even if it's, even if it's an administrative process, we'll share that information pretty readily. So there's kind of an obvious um, way of developing best practices and keeping up with kind of the, the state of the art then. Yep. So, and that, that's, I'm assuming that's, is that partially, is that motivated by safety concerns or desires to expand nuclear production or what's, what's the motivation behind that kind of collaboration within this industry? Well, so a lot of it, so in the U S uh, it came out of the incident at three mile Island in, uh, in 1979, uh, and the realization that another plant had had a similar event that didn't have the same negative uh, And so uh, as they were looking at, you know, how are we going to prevent something like this from happening again in the U.S., uh, it became evident that we were better off working together, sharing information on these levels, uh, because we, you know, you can't you can't just build a nuclear power plant in somebody else's backyard and compete with them. So it's not a, in that sense, we don't compete as strongly as um, like a, you know, a, a car company might. Uh, and so it just it works a lot better. It also it helps us prevent. We we self regulate at some level. Like we still respond to the Nuclear Regulatory Committee, uh, or Commission, excuse me. Uh, and there there's actually two inspectors that that work at my power plant. Uh, and they, they don't work for the company. They work for the federal government, uh, but they are there. They come to our meetings. They can go anywhere they want. We can't stop them. And, you know, we have a good relationship with them. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're there to watch us. But we then, as an industry, uh, talk with one, uh, one another and hold each other accountable. So, you know, uh, in April, I'm going to another site to go through their training material and evaluate them and give them feedback on what they can do better. Um, so. 
Well, that is fascinating. That's a really interesting public-private partnership kind of idea. That's that that is fascinating. Well, so we are definitely uh, so we're we're a debate podcast, as I mentioned uh, earlier, and we're focusing on this as a debate resolution. The previous debate resolution, as uh, several of our listeners I'm sure will be familiar, focused on getting rid of nuclear weapons. Um, so this is probably a basic question, I assume, but I, I think it'll be helpful for our audience. How exactly is the development of nuclear energy for commercial energy production different from the development of nuclear weapons capacity? Besides the obvious that we're not trying to attack someone else with the development of a new electrical plant or anything like that. Besides the defense offense or the irrelevance of that, how, how are these things different from each other? Well, when you look at the processing of the uranium, it's not substantially different. Uh, they just, uh, a, a nuclear weapon is uh, somewhere in the high 90s uh, percent like a, a uranium-235. So it's as opposed to the three to five that is in our fuel, it's way more enriched which means that you're going to get with a, a smaller, you know, a smaller payload, a larger, uh, a lot, a larger um, energy re- re- release. Um, and so the biggest difference is basically how long and how energy intense uh, the, the enrichment process is. Um, so, you know, in theory, and, and not to get into the, the political aspect of it, but the, the questions with the Iranian nuclear deal and, you know, we uh, had the treaty that allowed them to uh, enrich for nuclear power but not enrich for weapons. Um, and we, you know, th- th- those questions, the, the only difference is how long, basically, and how much effort. Uh, it's the same process there. There are big differences, though, in the way that you have to handle uh, that um, that fuel or that, you know, nuclear material uh, because of the concentration. Um, so our our uranium-235 at 3 to 5% is pretty stable, right? It, uh, we pull it out of, the, uh, out of the reactor core and, uh, you know, we, we disassemble it about every 18 to 24 months uh, to change out and put new fuel in. And so it's it's highly radioactive, but it's not at all explosive, right? You could you know you could hit it with a hammer, you could you know whatever, and, and there wouldn't be an issue with it. Okay, so but the the more highly enriched it is, the more unstable it becomes. That's right. Okay, That's right. so then this really there there is a an inherent safety factor then here, but this, it's the, what you're describing sounds like a very safe, controlled process. Like it's not not prone. It's this does not sound like an accident prone industry or, or process. Is that, is that accurate? We are painfully slow. Uh, a lot of times there's a lot of care that's taken. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when mistakes are made, it's usually paperwork or, uh, or things that are so well within the design margin, uh, because what they do in order to protect us from ourselves is, uh, you know, they, they'll put, they'll load extra poisons that, that stop neutrons in the racks for spent fuel. So that even if you put the wrong assemblies next to each other, you couldn't go critical. And, uh, you know, so we don't make those mistakes very often, uh, but, and we fix them right away when we, whenever, if anybody made one of those mistakes, but even if we did, it really wouldn't be consequential. We'd just be not in accordance with our own procedures. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of safety margin and a lot of processes that, that help us stay on the rails. Well, let, let's let's shift gears a little bit over to uh, some of the some of the benefits of uh, of affirming the resolution. Uh, so, I know the, the the big argument I've heard about why we should have more nuclear power has something to do with the. Uh, uh, it really has a lot to do with sustain a sustainable source of energy. Is this more sustainable than our current methods of producing electricity? I know you mentioned coal a few moments ago, and are there other kind of major methods of producing electricity in the status quo? Okay, so I mean, when you look at—I don't know the numbers. Somebody could look that up online pretty easily. But but when you look at, um, you know, we produce a good portion, about a quarter of the the total electricity in, in the country. Uh, coal is another significant contributor. Natural gas is another significant contributor that is um, also pretty clean from a carbon standpoint. If if global warming is a, or climate change is a major concern, and there are additionally, it's a relatively small portion of our total. Uh, our, our grid power is from wind and solar. Um, so um, coal, when you, when you look at coal, that's really the highest carbon output. Um, so if that's your concern, that's a major issue. 
And it also, uh, when you just look at the sheer mass, uh, if you drive by a coal power plant and are able to see their fuel pile, it, it looks like a mountain of coal. Mm. And that's about six to seven days of fuel. Um, so that gets turned over, that gets burnt on a regular basis. That's an ongoing thing. And it's a lot of fuel to power that. Uh, as opposed to, you know, our core is about, you know, 12 feet by 12 feet. Uh, uh, it's about a cube of 12. So 12 by 12 by 12. And, and that'll take us for 18 months. And we only trade about trade out about a third of that. And then natural gas um, is less carbon dense uh, and it still gets a lot of power in there. So it's actually a fairly clean resource. And right now, um, based on fracking and some of the other uh, deposits that we found in the United States and in Canada, uh, that's actually a really cheap way to make electricity right now. But uh, And then when you look at the other resources, wind and solar, those are clean uh, at least largely clean. I mean, there's always, in everything, there's always carbon to get it put up. There's always carbon to take it down. There's carbon to maintain. So it's never carbon-free uh, in a true sense. But at the same time, um, you know, wind and solar have some potential. The issue with wind and solar is you've got to have sun and you've you got to have wind. And so they're intermittent. And unfortunately, uh, when... You know, you, you, you don't just turn on your lights and you don't just need your uh, your iron lung in the hospital when when it's sunny out. You need it when it's gloomy or when it's a, a calm day. And so any sort of grid has to have either they've either got to advance uh, electric uh, the batteries, which is what people are talking about. And right now, we don't have the technology. We're not close to the technology on that. Or you have to have baseload units. And your choices for baseload units right now basically are nuclear, uh, coal, and natural gas. So in the end, I think that nuclear, we're, we're, we're pretty close to carbon-free. Uh, and uh, I, I think that we're a pretty good option uh, in terms of the baseload units uh, for the future. The issue we're having right now is that natural gas is really cheap, uh, which makes nuclear is, is expensive to build and that is dampening our growth and continued operation oh that's really interesting because that that could give a really good access to the affirmative on this resolution so uh debaters here's at least my thought on that that uh if the united states should increase its use of nuclear energy for commercial energy production one good affirmative argument or pro argument in public forum could involve support uh, advocating for specific funding to offset the startup cost of developing nuclear power plants in underserved regions that uh, either have low access to other ways of developing electricity or are showing signs of coal petering out within coming generations. Uh, now, Spence, tell us a little bit about uh, what you, you mentioned that, so uranium is an element that is mined, is mm -hmm. that correct? Yep. Okay. So how easy is that to mine? And does that does the mining of uranium have kind of uh, ecological downsides? Um, well, the mining of anything has ecological downsides. Uh, and I don't know as much about the mining processes uh, because I've been on the energy production side. Sure. Um, but both the mining and the uh, enrichment do can take it takes energy to make energy. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, and so everything comes down to a question of trade-offs. And, uh, you know, it, basically we use a portion of our electricity could be said to be going to the enrichment process because that's actually a fairly high energy intensive uh, process. And then, a, uh, you know, some of the energy or some of it could go to the mining operation. So, you know, in the end, we're net lower carbon uh, than coal by a significant margin and, and again, less uh, carbon than uh, natural gas. But uh, anybody that said we're not really carbon-free and nothing is. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think I've heard a uh, – I'm trying to remember – I ran into some argument about uh, there was an unexpected – um, oh, it was in a congressional debate round where they were arguing about why we should go back to the gold standard. And one of the negative arguments was about the ecological harms of gold mining. And I was just not – I did not expect that to come up. But it, it got me thinking about that. Like, what does it take to acquire uranium? But I think that the the fact that we can never be carbon-free is really interesting. I think that's – 
I'm sure people would like to say we could, but uh, that, that makes sense that we could never actually have a, a true carbon zero uh, operation. Well, now, what are the benefits of increasing commercial nuclear energy output? Uh, is this would this somehow uh, would this also help us be better stewards of, of, of nature in any way? So I, I think yes, um, and, and and there's some some significant reasons for that. So uh, a few years ago, for example, uh, in North Carolina, there was a coal ash pond that broke, uh, and people don't think about some of the uh, people think about the hazards of nuclear power and live near nuclear power plant. I would by far rather live next to a nuclear power plant than I would rather than to a coal plant, for example, um, because uh, we pollute less uh, in a kind of not just the carbon way, which we don't really see the carbon, but we pollute less in the, in the sense of we don't we don't have any smoke. Uh, our site is really actually pretty clean uh, as it goes. I mean, there's dirt, but it's clean dirt, uh, and uh, so it, it's it's a it's an ecologically friendly endeavor. Uh, when you if you ever drive by cooling towers, those those things everybody thinks are the thing for nuclear power. Um, uh, the the big tall kind of uh, concave powers. Uh, that's just, that's not smoke that's coming out the top. That's just water vapor. And so what we do is we, we may be concentrating uh, some lake water a little bit, uh, but, but that's about it. So so nuclear power, I think, has a is one of the cleanest forms of energy. One of the counter arguments is what do you do with the waste? And that is one of the hardest things that we have to answer right now, um, because the waste is nuclear uh, are radioactive for an extended period of time afterward. Now, different countries have learned to deal with that in different ways. So France actually reprocesses their nu- their nuclear waste and they re-enrich it uh, so that then, uh, because, um, so uranium-235 is spent, but of that uranium-238, some of those uranium-238s uh, pick up a neutron, they beta decay into plutonium-238, uh, uh, or 239, and then plutonium-239 is also a nuclear fuel. And that's actually what you want the bombs to do, which is why we don't do it in the United States, because when Jimmy Carter passed the SALT Treaty uh, with uh, the former Soviet Union, what, what was the Soviet Union, uh, we both agreed to stop reprocessing. Um, and Interesting. so that's the biggest question we have out there, is what to do with the, the, the waste. Um but to put it in uh, a frame of reference, so uh, the the amount of waste that that the Harris plant had produced in about forty uh, something years of commercial operation uh, fit into a space about the size of a high school pool. If we took all of the nuclear waste from all of the uh, fuel. Uh, from all of the reactor plants in the United States and put them in a, in a single area in dry storage, it would, t- it would take a footprint about the size of the Superdome. And so we're, we're looking at an issue that, that has to be addressed and that we have to figure out a solution to, um, but that it isn't insurmountable in size or in technology. And in fact, technology has advanced to the point where um, most plants right now have a dry storage license where in addition to our spent fuel pools, uh, we actually also have spent fuel storage on site, um, and it's prevented from ever going critical based on design and spacing and uh, the chemical composition of the of the caskets. And then the casks are basically rated. So, you know, you could, you could fly a uh, Boeing 747 into it, and it'd still be there, and it might have, you know, some surface damage. So those are the big issues, and we're still wrestling with some of those in there. No, that's really helpful. And I'm assuming that like the carbon issue, there's no way to have an energy production facility without waste. So this becomes a question of how do you manage the waste that is produced in the process? That's something no matter, even if we shifted completely to a different method of producing energy, there would still be waste of some sort to then deal with in that process. Absolutely. Uh, There's heavy metals in solar power. Uh, you know, I, I have solar panels on my roof, and uh, when the 25 or 30 year lifespan has expired, uh, I've got to figure out a way to dispose of those uh, those heavy metals that are potentially damaging. You know, there's ecological costs 
not quite as high as some people like to make out, but there are birds that do die uh, with windmills, uh, and uh, they have heavy metals and other things that waste that has to be disposed. Uh, you know, and, and coal ash, like I said, that's an issue. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I'd rather live close to nuclear power than coal. Uh, it's because of the, the ash, because that is uh, there's a lot of arsenic and a lot of other nasty things in there that we figured out a way to process. But some of those things it takes a long time to get rid of, just like uh, nuclear power. So when we're it's all about trade offs, right? And and there is no perfect solution um, if we're going to have uh, some of the technologies and some of the comforts and some of the life saving opportunities that we've got. You've got to have some sort of source, and it's going to be waste and you know offshoot that you have to deal with. This past summer, I, uh, I read a novel by uh, scientist Homer Hickam, the uh, guy from the movie October Sky, a few years ago, oh. and uh, he, he sets the it's it's the novelization of his own boyhood, and he he sets it in uh, Colwood, West Virginia. Uh, you were talking about the coal ash, reminded me of the novel, and I mean he has this fascinating description of. Uh, I think he was 12 or 13 in this uh, in the, this section of the story where he wakes up one night and he just hears his dad coughing and his dad hacks up a giant bunk or load of coal dust, basically. And his dad eventually, a couple years later, develops a black spot on his lung. That's sort of uh-huh. it's a it's a death knell to a coal miner. Uh, it takes years for that to then that to work its way out and, and be the death sentence. But once that spot has developed, a coal miner knows that he only has so long at it. I think for years we've had we've been a very coal dependent uh, electrical grid system. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's certainly been a lot of harms to the people who have been involved in that in terms of their own health, but there's also been a lot of economic opportunities there as well. Um, are there inherent physical dangers to working in a nuclear power plant? I mean, with with radioactive material, is that is that harmful to the people who are in that industry? So um, our total industrial safety rating is actually one of the, one of the best in of all industries. Uh, you're safer working in commercial nuclear power on, on average, right, than you are uh, even in an office, right? When you look at uh, you, you look at the injuries that we have on site, which we we have a couple every now and again, and OSHA recordables. Uh, you know, like last year we had a bee sting, and uh, we had uh, somebody that was moving apart. That could have happened anywhere in the warehouse, and it dropped on his foot. And uh, then we had somebody that hurt themselves in the office. I can't remember what that one was, but you know. So a lot of them are just uh, life, it, it, actual injuries due to the nuclear part. Uh, I can't think of one at either of the plants that I've been part of in that time. So it's it's a very safe industry uh, when you look at the ratings across and. Um, I think it's the Department of Labor that has these uh, these uh, the statistics, uh, but but we're we're it's good to work there. Now that being said, on the other hand, we do get exposed to contamination and radioactive material. Um, as a as an instructor, and having been in the in the nuclear navy, uh, my lifetime dose is really really low. Um, now I've been at mostly pretty low dose plant plants, uh, which has helped. And I don't do a lot of maintenance work uh, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a guy that works with my head and not with my hands. Uh, and so I don't get exposed as much. But what's happened is that the, uh, I mean, if you take a cross-country flight, you get about 300 millirem of, of dose, right, of, of radiation exposure due to the rays from the sun. Uh, if, you, if you eat a banana, you get because of the potassium and the amount of radioiodides uh, in the potassium and the other minerals in there, you actually get more dose than I get on a weekly or monthly basis. Um, if you live in an area, which uh, Raleigh is, uh, that has radon inversions, uh, you'll get more dose from radon uh, than I got in a year while I was working at Harris. Uh, and so, you know, it's all relative. Uh, you'll get more you can get a lot more from x-rays than you can get working in nuclear power. We're actually capped uh, by the federal government at five rem per year. Um, and uh, you read it and each site limits everybody to two rem per year. And mm-hmm. so actually the nuclear industry, one of those things that we do to cooperate is when a worker goes from one place to another, uh, we share the information about how much dose they have uh, so that um, they don't exceed that 
two REM limit. Um, when you look at medical statistics, you, you you need to be up into the ten to fifteen range, ten to fifteen REM range before you see any sort of effects, uh, medically speaking. And when you talk about like you know uh, the nuclear sickness that, that came after the atomic bombs, uh, that's closer to twenty to thirty REM in a very short period of time. So that that is fascinating. Like I I suspect one of the biggest arguments that the con is going to try to raise is that by doing this there will be an obvious harm to the people who then work in those facilities. And you just gave us a great list of places for students to go research for those specific numbers and, and even ex- great examples to show where uh, that, that's really not the case, that this is a, this is a manageable concern and that with, uh, with proper regulation and oversight and collaboration, that it's, it's not a difficult thing to, to keep track of. Well, now, I remember, uh, uh, oh goodness, I think it's been at least a year, if not a little bit more than a year now, uh, since uh, freshman uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proposed her Green New Deal. Uh, or Ethan and I, uh, he's my co-host, Ethan and I uh, do a, we did an episode on the Green New Deal. It was our very first bonus episode. So listeners, if you want to go back to that, I think it's like episode four or five in the catalog. But we did the we sort of did a roast of the Green New Deal as one mm-hmm. episode because it was just so much fun to read through the document and just mock the logical inconsistencies of that. But she attacks nuclear power pretty hardcore in that document. Uh, uh, so there, there was there's not going to be any kind of development of nuclear power, and yet at the same time, where you've showed us plenty of things, it seems like. Increasing nuclear power could reduce carbon output from coal sources primarily, but I, and possibly other places as well. Uh, why the stigma in in the Green New Deal against nuclear power? What are your thoughts? So, I mean, the nuclear industry has three significant events uh, in its in its history. Uh, three Mile Island in the United States, which actually isn't that significant, um, but it was uh, scary. Uh, because people didn't know what's going on. Uh, then you have Chernobyl that happened in 1983, uh, which was a big event. And, it, you know, that actually raised the, the level of uh, background radiation on the, on the globe uh, because it released enough uh, radioactive material. And then in 2011, you have uh, the incident at Fukushima uh, Fukushima Daiichi, uh, where they had uh, a long-term event that, that caused them to spread but so I think that's a big piece of it. I think also um, that some people in the environmental movement, and, and I'm an environmentalist myself, I just come at it from a different angle, but some people think that there's not going to be trade-offs, that we can do something like uh, solar and wind and, and that's it, right? And that's going to be it. And, and, and they're not thinking about, I think, some of the difficulties in battery storage issues. So... So I think on one level, it's kind of pie in the sky. Uh, I think the other piece that happens is that uh, there is a connection in people's mind between nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And, you know, it's, it's similar technology and there's a lot of connection, uh, but there's a huge difference in the concentration and, and you can measure those things and it's pretty obvious. So I, I think that's a big piece of it. The other piece is that... Um, and there's studies that show this, that uh, that people are afraid of what they don't understand. And we all understand how a coal plant works within reason, right? The, you know, the you, you burn you burn dirt and it makes the water hot and the water get, turns to steam and it t- makes the turbines spin, right? That's pretty simple. But the idea of a, uh, a neutron, shooting a neutron at uh, this little bit of uh, uranium and having it split and make more energy... And when you turn the switch off, that you don't it, it immediately stop making power, which is one of the differences between nuclear power and every other form of power uh, generation. That scares people; they don't understand it, and people don't understand uh, radioactivity because they, you know, uh, when you start to bring the C word into it, cancer, right? Because radiation can, over time, if it's uh, hit, you know, get if you're exposed to it in a certain way, it does, you know, slightly increase. And if you get a lot of radiation, significantly increase your risk of cancer. And so those things are pretty scary to people, and and we don't teach it, right? Because I I don't remember in my high school physics class uh, anything more than like a day 
um, this is what happens with uh, with fission, and I'm sure that I forgot that shortly after the test. Um, and so it, it really, the uncertainty scares people a whole lot. It seems like this will be a great resolution for students to dig into and really get a grasp on the the real possibilities here, and hopefully that that knowledge will dispel some of the myths involved in in the nuclear power industry with replacing those myths with facts. Um, now, uh, okay, so let, let's shift gears then toward towards your thoughts about about the future of nuclear power. Uh, do do you think it's likely that we will see the increase of nuclear power plants across the United States and the expansion of this method of developing? Uh, uh, electricity or something different for the future of the nuclear power industry? Well, uh, the plants that we have are mostly getting, you know, they're getting older. Uh, there are two plant, uh, two more power plants in construction uh, down in Georgia. Uh, the problem with the, the plans and, this, and, and what we've been doing is it, it, it's incredibly big and incredibly expensive. Uh, but I'm actually pretty hopeful about the future of nuclear power in general. I don't think we're going to see a lot more uh, single, you know, 1,200 megawatt uh, uh, plants like we have in the past. But there's a there's a company out there developing a technology uh, for small reactors. It's called New Scale, and instead of being 1,200 megawatts, they're about 50 megawatts each. Um, that changes the game. So now, at a location, you put 10 of these smaller. Uh, nuclear plants, these smaller 10, uh, uh, 10 reactors in there, right? You're producing 500, you're, you can scale it up a little bit. Uh, but the chances that you'd have a system malfunction on all of them at the same time go down significantly. And so the risk goes down significantly. You know, we play by the odds. Uh, everybody does. Everything does. You know, there's always an, a chance that something's going to fail. And so we, we play in the uh, minus uh, 10 to the minus 8th, 10 to the minus 10th chance that things are going to happen, right? And this improves that by a couple of orders of magnitude Hmm. by having a smaller scale. And they've also taken uh, some of the lessons that we've learned over the last 40 years. Um, One of the the things that could be improved about the way the existing plants operate, we we can't change those, but when we build new things, right, a a thing that we've learned is that uh, it's better to have your safety systems that operate without electricity. Because uh, believe it or not, as a nuclear power plant, one of our biggest uh, problems is or, or concerns is making sure that we always have electricity in order to run the pumps to keep the water moving to, to make sure that we don't overheat after we shut down. So these smaller scale uh, plants actually are passive systems, and they're small enough that you can stick them into a vat of water. And they actually just they sit in a vat of water that can provide up to three months of cooling uh, passively. Right, so no operator action. <laughs> Something goes wrong, and it has cooling capacity for the long term in there. And then the likelihood of not being able to get in is very limited. So I'm, I, I think that these things they're going to be cheaper to build um, because now with uh, large scale nuclear power, you have to um, you have to have special forges that actually make our, our vessels and all our stuff. Uh, so it has to be shipped in on, uh, you know, on cargo ships and railroad cars and so forth. With the new scale, it's more like a semi truck, and so it takes a less technology. Uh, there's not a backlog on it. It's a lot easier to build. A lot of the stuff can actually be built in a warehouse or in a, a factory someplace and then shipped. So it's going to cut the cost down. It's going to reduce the risk even more, and uh, and it has a lot of benefit. I think for a pretty clean energy source for the future. That that is fascinating, and the the, the scaling down of that to a smaller size is really interesting. Is this something that would, would you expect to see a lot of other nations? I know you mentioned several European countries, and also China and Japan both have this as well. Is this something that if the United States is not willing to develop? This is this something we would be behind other countries in 20, 30 years from now? I, I do think it's going to grow. Uh, so, uh, in fact, I, I just got a job, uh, job, you know, posting from uh, a plant that I, in uh, in Eastern Europe uh, that's they're starting construction. Uh, the uh, UAE has a couple of plants that are getting ready to start up in the next year, uh, and China. Is ahead, of, is ahead of us in some of the technology. So we've built 
we're building two of these AP1000 uh, big reactors. They've got a dozen or so uh, that they're building. And so, you know, worldwide, I think nuclear power is on the rise. Well, Dr. Spencer, thank you so much for, for sharing all of this with us. Would you, are there any resources you would recommend for students to get into with, with our target audience, our high school students, but bright high school students who are motivated to do deep dives into good research and preferably uh, research that's maybe slightly less, uh, less accessible than just Googling, hey, what are the latest stats on nuclear power? What, what resources would you steer students towards? So um, there are there's like three different TED talks out there that provide pretty decent overviews, and so if you if you search that there's there's actually uh, one that's a uh, pro and con where it's actually debate that happens, so that, that might be a good source uh, that you could take in, in in ten to fifteen minutes per chunk. Um, but when it comes to other sources, so if you're looking for cons, uh, the, the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists uh, has a website uh, that they they post a lot of cons. Uh, and they're opposed to nuclear power. So that's a pretty good source uh, if you're looking for the counter arguments. Uh, I think NC Warren there in North Carolina also has some stuff there. Um, I don't always think they're factually accurate or, or take the risks well, but, but they do have some counter arguments that, that need to be wrestled with. Um, on the positive side, uh, the NRC, uh, so nrc.gov, there's information about the basics of nuclear power if somebody wanted to use, uh, learn how it, uh, how it works. Um, but they're understandably kind of neutral on it. Uh, but uh, you could also go to the nuclear, uh, let, let me see, the uh, NEI, uh, Nuclear Energy Institute, um, which is going to basically, it has a, a pretty good uh, explanation of this is what, they're, they're trying to sell nuclear power. So it has a lot of positive positives in there. And so, I mean, that's where I'd start. If, if I were to recommend one book, um, uh, the uh, why we need why we need nuclear power uh, by Michael Fox. So why we need nuclear power by Michael Fox, uh, and uh, it's it's actually pretty accessible. It's from Oxford University Press, and uh, but you could probably get it in a library loan or something like that. And he lays out most of the arguments and counter arguments. He's going to give the details about. Uh, the cross-country flights and how much rev- how much exposure you get and all those sorts of kind of key pieces of information. And he wrestles with some of the hard questions as well. So that's a pretty good source. Excellent. Now, uh, Dr. Spencer, you've given us a wonderful overview of your field, uh, and I'd, I'd be remiss if I let you go without one last uh, with, without asking your advice. Uh, what uh, you, you've been in Navy, you've been in the professional world, you've also been a long-term student, and come back to graduate school and doctoral work. What advice would you offer to high school students who are thinking either about heading straight to college or perhaps thinking about maybe a season in the workforce before college or just head straight to the workforce? What advice would you offer students in those positions? Well, first off, there's the realization that you'd never know where you're going to end up. Because if you'd asked me as a high school senior if I thought I was going to end up here, uh, I would have said absolutely not. Um, So that's a piece to know. The second piece is that the, the purpose in education is to form us as humans, right? So when whatever you think you want to do, uh, ask, your, uh, ask yourself as you go through a degree program, what am I learning from this? What am I trying to gain? And how is this going to help me be a better human out of it? Uh, one of the biggest issues that I see when I interview people as a supervisor mm-hmm. is that people can't articulate um, what they learned in college, uh, right? Uh, they, they can say, I got a degree in X, engineering or, or, or whatever it is. Um, but what did they learn? How did they change? Uh, who did they become as a result of that? And so both when you're looking at which college to go to and as well uh, what you major in, that's a bigger question, I think, than what the piece of paper at the end says. Um, so obviously, if you want to be a nurse, you have to have a nursing degree. And, you know, there's some requirements like that. Uh, but in general, uh, I'd rather hire a philosopher uh, that can think clearly than I would uh, a nuclear engineer uh, who had the technical background but, but couldn't think. Excellent advice. Well, uh, Spence, I know you just published a book. Give us, give us the, the summary of your book and uh, tell us where, where can we find your work. Well, uh, so I just published The Christian Mind of C.S. Lewis, uh, which is a collection of volumes. 
uh, in honor of Michael Travers. He was a longtime professor there at Southeastern. And uh, so uh, it's a, a really pretty good collection of, uh, of works. I got Leland Riken that contributed, uh, James Como, who's a C.S. Lewis expert, and a number of people that knew Michael Travers well. Uh, and so we wrestle with the question, uh, why is Lewis so interesting? And the answer is, I think, because, uh, because, because of how he thought about everything and his, his worldview fit everything into it. And so that, that collection might be a little dry for some of your students, but it, there's a lot of good stuff in it. Right? So you can find that at Amazon or, or, or whatever. It's, it's out there and published. Uh, just came out in December. Uh, if people are interested in other things that I've written, including a review of that uh, book on nuclear power, uh, I write on my own blog at ethicsandculture.com. Um, and I also write for the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. I write for the Intersect Project at Southeastern and uh, pretty much uh, anywhere else that I have time for <laughs> along the way. <laughs> Wonderful. I have, I have seen buzz about the Christian mind of C.S. Lewis. I did not realize that was your project. That's yeah. so exciting. I, I'm going to have to get a hold of that. Uh, I'm doing a class this semester on uh, Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, and uh, I, I didn't know until I started taking the class that uh, Lewis loved the Fairy Queen. And mm-hmm. uh, I think about every time I've met with the professor, I, I've found some new spot that just seems to me to be a direct connection between Narnia and Fairy Queen. So it's uh, new new stuff on, on the mind of Lewis is always interesting. So I'm going to have to get a copy of your, your book and check that out. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight and lending us your expertise. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you also for joining us for this episode of What's the Res? If you want to get in touch with us to leave us any feedback, help us know if this information was helpful to you as you were writing your cases, you can do that in a variety of ways. You can reach us by email at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at the handle at whatstheres underscore. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. And just in case you can't get enough debate in your life, you can also subscribe to the premium side of our podcast. You can go to our website at whatstheres.com and click the banner there. That'll take you over from the free side to the premium side, where every month we release a new recorded debate, real debates by real people, where we debate the controversial issues of the day. So please do check that out. Thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate your support. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Oh, no, 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 no.